Well, we've been trying to go through a prayer series in the book of Psalms before the sermon time. We'll spend just a little bit of time in prayer, and I want to continue that today. Um, Psalm 23 that you know very well, verse 5 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. As Christians, we celebrate through Jesus Christ the defeat of our enemies, our greatest enemies being Satan, sin, and death. And Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice on the cross, destroyed all of our enemies for us. And he truly has anointed us. He's given us his spirit and He's prepared a table before us. He's served us. He's loved us. We have so many blessings um, in our lives. So why don't we take just a moment to say thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for you fill in the blank. Father, we celebrate you today because you are the giver of every perfect gift. And you gave us your son. You gave us your son to redeem, to reconcile us to you so that we can walk in truth before you. He's the greatest gift that you've given us and we, we praise you. And it's through him that we know what it is truly good. And we thank you, Lord God. Let our hearts be filled with joy and gratitude in your presence. And now as your sheep, Lord, use your word to guide us, to feed us, to heal us, to comfort us, to bind up what is broken, to call us to repentance, to change us, to transform us. Help us to sit submissively under your word. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Since the Queen's passing on Thursday, a lot has been made about her Christian faith. And rightfully so. She, by all accounts, was a committed Christian who truly believed in Jesus Christ and tried to live her life um, in service um, to her Lord. And because of that, it changed the way that she led and changed the way that she did her role. And she viewed service as the core of human privilege, um, Service to other human beings, being the greatest honor that anyone could ever have. And and she talked a lot about this 
even going back to a young age, um, and this was before she even became queen, age 21, her father at that point was king. It was right after World War II, and she told the British people in an address, she said, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. Queen Elizabeth would then go and take the throne four years after that and reign until just this week for 70 plus years. And in her reign, she modeled a deep respect for human dignity and for service of of other human beings. And I just want us to mark that this didn't come from Queen Elizabeth. This came from the Bible, this mentality of service that she viewed was so important to society. Didn't come from ancient paganism uh, that viewed the, the whole goal of, of life as conquering others. It was very tribal in its mentality. The whole goal of one's life was to increase your tribe's honor and another person's tribe's shame. This did not come from any other world religion. This came, this mentality that Elizabeth embodied came from a Judeo-Christian value that she knew that the highest privilege and honor that anybody could have in society is to serve other human beings that have worth and that have dignity before God. Well, after the flood in Genesis 7 and 8, that's when the flood happened in Genesis 7 and 8, God gave human beings a new beginning. I'm sorry, I almost said Adam. Noah and his family got off the ark. And it was like Noah was a new Adam. This was a new start to humanity. And God gave Noah a promise to never destroy the earth again in the same way like he had with the flood. And he also gave Noah some instructions on human life and its importance to him and how it could flourish in a society if we'll only obey the instructions that God has given us. God's revealed the framework for how human life is going to work best. And today we're going to examine this framework that God gave Noah in a set of instructions right after he got off the ark after the flood. And we're going to understand how any society will only flourish and be healthy if it abides by this framework. And we're going to seek to understand our part to play in it. 
So it will only flourish if it multiplies life, if any society multiplies life. God said to Noah, if it sustains life, and then if it protects life. Instead of reading our passage all at once this morning, we're going to read it just a few verses at a time. And I have shortened the amount of verses that we're going to cover this morning than what is in your bulletin. We'll cover the rest down to verse 17 next week. We're just going to go to verse 7 this morning. Sometimes when I get in there and I start studying, I just realize that that, that passage is probably more appropriate for two sermons versus one. So let's start out by reading Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. These are God's instructions to Noah and to us all and to anyone after Noah and to societies after Noah about how society is going to work and flourish. All right, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons. And said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be on every living creature on the earth. I'll stop right there. I actually went into verse 2. So multiplying life. There are many people who believe that the earth already has too many people on it. Not enough people. But from the beginning, God told Adam, and he repeats it here with Noah, be fruitful and multiply. And this should be a reassuring thing to us, that after the flood, after all of this judgment of God on human sin, God still loved humanity. And he had not reversed his plan for humanity to fill the earth and people created in the image of God to glorify him. God loves people. God issued this this instruction to Adam to multiply, to, to fill the earth. And then he gives it to Noah and his wife and his sons and their Wives, the, the God-ordained and natural place to have children, for the earth to be filled and to multiply, is in the family with one mom and one dad who are married to each other. So this command that God gives both to Adam and Noah is in the context of marriage and family, the basic building block that God has given us for human society to to flourish and to grow. So the problem that we're shown here isn't that there are too many children. The problem that exists in Western countries, especially today, is there aren't enough children. And more specifically, we've seen the breakdown of the family 
the place, the, the context for which children are meant to be reared and for them to flourish. So if we've seen a breakdown in society, it's because we've seen a breakdown in the family. And I won't get too thick into talking about the problems that Western countries in particular are facing, including the U.S., where, where we're simply not having enough babies, uh, where couples aren't having enough babies to even to re- replace the current generation, much less to grow the population on into the next generation. And the problem with that is, as society ages and people live longer, if they've had fewer babies, then as those babies get older and become adults, there won't be enough people of working age to be able to continue to sustain the society. It's a major problem, and it goes right along here with what God gave both to Adam and now to Noah. It's a problem because we're not listening to God. We're not listening to God about marriage. We're not listening to God about the family. And we're not having a good attitude towards children. And that's where I want to turn now. The attitude that many people have towards children is children are a curse rather than a blessing. Um, rather than something to give thank, thanks to God about, um, it, it's something to avoid in one's life. Uh, many people seem to think that, that children is the greatest threat to the lifestyle that they want to have. And this is why many babies are aborted today. Uh, to, to many women and men, a baby is the enemy of their freedom. Uh, they don't want to be limited in any way to care for a baby. So the baby has to go. It, it, it's their autonomy and freedom that's most important. So anything that threatens that, especially the care of a baby, that simply has to go. And this all goes back to that attitude of service that we started talking about at the beginning. Jesus said that he came to serve. He came to be a servant, not to be served. But today, the goal, it seems, with many in our society, in in Western countries, seems to be the opposite. I exist to gratify myself and to make sure that I'm happy. The greatest aim is selfish self-fulfillment, it seems. All while the Bible shows us consistently including here in Genesis, that we should live to serve others. Starting a family, getting married, having children, that is a framework that God has given us that makes us orient our lives not to ourselves, but to serve other people. And he's given us this framework right from the beginning. 
Again, if society is going down, it's going down because we're rejecting the basic framework that God has given us all to follow. So the first instruction that God gave to Noah after the flood, which represents a new start and a new beginning for human society, was marriage, was family, was having children, multiplying life, and transmitting God's glory through service all over the face of the earth. So after telling Noah to multiply life, he next instructed Noah about sustaining human life. Let's read about that together. These are verses 2 through 4 of chapter 9 of Genesis. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth. Every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, they are placed under your authority. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. So God told Noah, look, as you and your family multiply, and their families multiply, and their families multiply, and their families multiply, and their families multiply, I've got you covered. I've given you food. The earth is going to produce a yield. The, the plants are for you to eat. And then for the first time after the flood, God says the animals are also there for you to eat. So God has given us food to sustain our lives. But unfortunately, because we live in a fallen world, there are millions of people on planet Earth who do live in poverty, who are hunger, hungry, who do lack basic nutrition. And the challenge for us today is to get the food, to get the material needs to the people who need it the most. We're in impacted by this in Kentucky. Research by Feeding America shows that one in six youth in Kentucky face hunger. Kentucky's food insecurity rate is higher than the national average. Uh, since COVID-19, uh, Feeding America estimates food insecurity has gone up by 40% in Kentucky. And then according to 2021 statistics, I found this on the website of WKYT News. This is a Lexington news station. That Kentucky adults ages 50 to 59 had the highest rate of food insecurity in the country at nearly 17%. That's 80% higher than the national average. So this 
is a problem that we face right here in Kentucky. The Bible tells us in both its teaching and then numerous, numerous examples all over Scripture that as people of faith in the living bread of life, Jesus Christ, that we ought to be concerned about hungry people, people in need. As churches, we must care for both the spiritual needs and the physical needs of people. When Paul and another missionary, his name was Barnabas, set out to go on their first missionary journey, to go tell people about Jesus, it was, of course, the priority there was the spiritual message of reconciliation with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as they were leaving, the apostles charged them and reminded them about physical needs also, not to neglect the physical needs of the people that they were ministering to and, and preaching the gospel to. In, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says, they ask only that we would remember the poor, which I made every effort to do. There are countless and countless instructions just like that all over Scripture about how we as Christians must not neglect and forget the material poor around us. Going back to Genesis and God's promise and instruction to Noah about sustaining life, taking care of our neighbors in need is one of the bedrock instructions, principles that God has given us for any society. And Christians ought to be at the forefront of that. And we have been historically. One of the reasons why Christianity grew in the second, third, fourth centuries in the Roman Empire was was because they cared for people in need constantly. Listen to this quote from, it's the Roman Emperor Julian who ruled in the 4th century. And his nickname, by the way, was the apostate. He did not like Christianity. He was all about pagan religions. And, and remember what I said about paganism, that it was a game of power. It, it was all about conquering people and in, in lifting up your honor and your tribe's honor and, and squelching other people. So he didn't like Christianity, but he did know something that was unique about Christianity, and he noted that. And I quote here from um, uh, pastor and author John Piper from one of his books, and, he, and he's quoting and talking about Emperor Julian. He said, the Roman Emperor Julian, writing in the 4th century, regretted the progress of Christianity because it pulled people away from the Roman gods. So he didn't want people being pulled away from these pagan gods. But it was happening. The Christians were winning people over. And this is what Julian said. Atheism, what he called the Christian faith, mocking it, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans, another name that he gave Christians, 
care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for help, that we should render them. So he was like, what's going on here? These Galileans, these Christians, not only care for their own poor, the material needs of their own, but they also care about pagans too, and people are flocking to Christ because of it. Christianity is a show-and-tell faith. It's all about showing in tangible ways the love of Christ and then telling others the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's one more important instruction going back to Genesis that God gave to Noah and to us about how society ought to function, the the framework of society, and that is in protecting life. And all three of these instructions are all about the dignity of human life. So let's look at protecting human life. Genesis chapter 9, let's finish out by reading verses 5 to 7. And I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human if someone murders a fellow human. I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. But you, be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply it. This was God saying, I love human beings. I love human life. I want you to protect human life because human beings are made in my image. This is talking about murder and the consequences of murder that should happen on the murderer. And up until this, as we've seen, as we've preached in this sermon series called Beginnings, We're going from Genesis 1 to Genesis 11. We've already seen humanity did not have a good track record, even from the beginning, about human life. You have Cain murdering his brother Abel. You have Lamech murdering a young man and then bragging about it and then even singing about it in song. We've, as human beings, we've always had murder. We've always been violent um, toward one another, and we still live in a violent, murderous world. Here, God said those who murder their fellow human beings ought to face the consequences. Of course, they will face him in eternity. So in that ultimate sense, justice will always be done. But he's also established a way that ought to be a way a murderer should face consequences here on earth. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed. 
For God made humans in his image. Human life is so valuable, God says. He wants it to be protected. Now, is this calling for vigilante justice? uh, Where someone can personally go and take revenge? Um, Whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood shall be shed. Is that what it's meaning? That if if you have a loved one who's murdered, then you can go and take revenge? No, this is a hint at how God ordained government. It's a good thing. And he's given government the authority to make laws to protect human life. And then to punish evildoers who break those said laws. So this is a challenge that government ought to have righteous laws and then stick to those laws. In Romans chapter 13, Paul's talking about taxation and he's talking about the government. And he says in his words that God has given the government the sword to carry out God's temporal judgment this side of eternity. So, in no way does he want someone who would even go as far as to murder someone to get away scot-free. That's an injustice. There ought to be retribution when someone breaks laws, when someone just, just disregards completely human life. And, and, of course, the example here is the most severe, murder, But there are all sorts of other laws that a society ought to have to protect human life. And what this is about is an emphasis on the importance of the rule of law. It shouldn't be a rule of just a king, a human king, or a monarch that's deciding everything. It ought to be a rule of law, not the rule of personal justice or vengeance either in society. This protects human life to have laws on the books that carry consequences even up to, according to this, capital punishment for the crime of murder. And it's all because God loves human Life. He wants it to multiply. He sustains human life. And then he wants it to be protected. Now, I know that we've covered some really big ideas this morning. I mean, we've talked about a framework for all of human society and, and how any society can flourish by following God's instructions. Admittedly, It's hard to know personally 
how we can fit into this framework. God gave Noah these instructions, and they're for all people at, at all time. But still, how much impact can little O you and me have on society? We're just so small. The good news is God has made the small part important. When we think about faithfulness, when we think about and focus on our role, whatever it may be that God has given us, that's when we can make the most difference. We probably can't change in and of ourselves the nation. But we can start with our role in our family. We can start serving there and take up whatever role God may have given us with our friends, with our family, with our church family. We may not be able to change the nation, but we can change our little world through service. We can't meet everyone's hunger or material needs, but we can start to live with eyes for the need of others around us in our local community and see how we can get involved and see how we can help out. We can't stop all the crime that we see in America, especially lately, but we can live righteous lives, law-abiding here in our local community and vote to elect leaders that are going to be law-abiding, respect the, the rule of law, and then be a voice to local and state officials who do impact what laws are made. So it's easy to live life only just thinking of ourselves, like so many do in our culture. But even as this framework is so big, it does challenge us, just as we started with Queen Elizabeth, as she discovered that the greatest privilege and responsibility that anyone could ever have is just to serve their neighbor, is to love their neighbor. Jesus calls us to something more. And it's to love human life as he does and do what we can to help it to flourish in those around us and whatever responsibility and influence he's given us. He, he's called us to let us use him, to let him use us, rather, in our small part. And if we do that, we can make a big impact. We're all lawbreakers. Let's face it. We, we've all gone our own way. We've all not lived under his framework. He was a law keeper, Jesus Christ. He came willing to serve, and he did serve. And he did 
yield his life as a sacrifice for ours by dying on a cross for our sins. He got up out of the grave and he invites us into life to know him, to have our sins forgiven, and then by following him, live a life of love to him and service to other people. For us, those who follow Christ, he changes everything. I finish with this, Romans chapter 14, verses 7 to 9. For none of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Is that the heart cry that you have? That I don't live for myself, I don't live to myself, I belong to him. And whatever part he's asked me to play, I want to do it gladly. That's what he's called us to do. And who knows, if we play our part and honor God and influence others to play their part, and then others and then others and others, who knows, maybe we can change the nation and change the world. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. Thank you for the hope that we have of eternal life. And now before we join you in eternity, Lord, help us to play our part that you have for us in this life here on earth. Help us to be God-glorifying. Help us to be servant-hearted toward everyone that you place before us. And through playing our part, Lord, multiply our influence and impact for you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.